You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender. Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change. Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion. Eats Papa Lotl, a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. This episode is part of our Women of Myth series where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology. It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard. It's available wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you. Love a Monster I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so thrilled to welcome Jasmine Elmer to the podcast. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Jasmine has worked for over 20 years in the field of classical education. She combines her experience in the field with educational charity work and developing new and creative ways to represent the ancient world in the public sphere, including as a TV presenter and in her podcast, Legit Classics. Welcome, Jasmine. We're so excited to have you here. Yeah, this is so fun. Can't wait to get started, guys. So can you tell us where your passion for the classical world came from? Yeah, it's a really good question because I never really can pinpoint the exact moment. There are like little moments that like kind of happened in my childhood and then when I grew up. And little, like, I guess little interest, little glimmers of interest. So I came from, like, a really poor background, so we didn't really go away very often or do many things. But when I was 15, I got to go to Pompeii, and I was like, what is this place? And it was just so amazing. Like, I just felt that that if you've been there, if you've had the luxury of going to any of these sites, you just can feel the, like, 
energy of the place. Well, if you're into it, right? Not, not some people whiz around and go for the ice cream. If you only if you're like into it, you're a proper geek on it. But I just I just stood there and I was like, oh my god, I'm touching something that's two thousand years old. And you know how captivating the story is of what happened at Pompeii. So that kind of got me into it. And I think like muddled in with my mum telling me Greek myth stories when I was younger and I kind of like oh these stories are cool but we didn't get it at school so it was kind of just through some like I guess personal experiences like that that I started to get interested in it uh, and then it just won't go away like a bad rash carries on <laughs> <laughs> that is one way to describe our interest in the ancient world I suppose <laughs> <laughs> well I think you know that I like to joke about so uh that's why I've said that but yeah no I just I just like I've never tried to get rid of it, by the way. I've never gone to the doctor and asked for a special ointment to get rid of my love of the ancient world. But it's <laughs> no, more just... why would we do that? Yeah, no, why would you? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it just was there in that moment, and then it just never went away. And if anything, it's got... I'm now 40. I turned 40 at Christmas. And it's like, now it's even bigger, I think. <laughs> it's kind of it's like it's growing every every decade that goes on. It just gets like bigger and bigger. So I'm making it sound like a medical condition now, so I'll stop talking. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with it being a medical condition. Like, I feel like I had a very similar tra- trajectory here. You, you know, you didn't come from the, the same the kind of background where you had it around you all the time. So you had to find it for yourself. And that's kind of what happened with me. And and so in my work, what I really want to do is just make that easier for people. Because, you know, asking people in a modern world to go searching for something like this is really quite a big ask with everything that's bloody going on. So I think the the more we can just go, hey, you don't need to do that much work to get to this point where you're into it. You know, there's so many ways to get into it that just just go for it, I think. So that's it. what I'm trying to say in a really long winded way is the way I got into it still impacts me today. I still think about that a lot today of that experience. And when I'm talking to people that don't know anything about it, don't know where to start, I think of that moment and think, well, what what, what did that mean to me? And I can tap into that emotion to help me connect with other people so and I know you guys do the same thing so absolutely yeah neither one of us Jen and I have talked about this on the podcast many times neither one of us has a background in classics or history we're both English majors both have bachelor's degrees we just really love it I grew up in the states where like in my area at least there just isn't a lot of ancient stuff like I can't just walk out my door and find ancient ruins you know from from thousands of years ago. I mean, there are places in the US where you can find that, but not where I was. Is that thing in Nashville where you've got like the fake Parthenon or something? Isn't there like, yeah. There are some Native American ruins that are quite old. That's not as easy to find or ubiquitous necessarily. Where I grew up in Vermont, there are a few stone ruins that might be ancient and that also might be um, colonial era root cellars or something. It's kind of a local mystery, but where I grew up, it is hard to find that stuff. I think that's that, that thing where we're so spoiled in Europe. We, we, we forget that we're, we're so surrounded by this history in the UK, in mainland Europe. You forget, what, I'm actually trying to make the point that we're quite spoiled in Europe, is what I mean. It's kind of like we forget. From my perspective, a bit you are, yeah. But like, you know, I, I, I'm sure I was spoiled in other ways. So I've said this a few times, my grandfather was from Italy, and he was very much always trying to get me into the classical world. And when I was little, he tried teaching me Italian. And I think his proudest moment of me was when I told him I was going to take Latin in school. Because my school, I went to just a normal American public school, and they happened to offer Latin as one of the choices. It was a really difficult language because nobody else speaks it. But my grandfather was so thrilled. I remember sitting there looking at these sort of like 
textbooks that would show me what the ancient Roman house looked like or the ancient Roman street and just thinking, I'm never going to go to Italy because my family didn't have much money. I'm the oldest of three and we didn't travel like that. You know, if we were going to have a family holiday, it would be to see other members of our family, maybe a few states over. So I never thought I would ever visit any of the places I was studying. I felt quite disconnected from it for a long time. And then weirdly, I married a British guy and did go to Pompeii and had the same feeling you had. Nice. (laughs) I get it. It must be interesting for you as well, because it's part of your heritage. It's part of your personal heritage. So I don't have that in my family. And I'm talking about the classical world here right for a moment, because, you know, I've got other heritage that's different. But the I think that 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 I wonder how that is for you, right? Because you, you sort of know that somewhere down the line, possibly Roman, possibly Greek, I love how Italians, when you go to Italy, the kind of way that the like, you know, Roman culture is so integrated into their modern life. I mean, first of all, so much of the way of life you can you can find the connection to from, from ancient Rome to modern Italian living. And what do I mean by that? Just kind of like the the acknowledgement of ancestry and how important it is and history and kind of certain elements of the way of the Mediterranean way of life are very Roman. I'm not here saying that the Italians are going across Europe and making provinces out of everything. That's not what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> no, they left that behind a while ago. <laughs> but yeah, I just, when I go there, like I kind of, th- I, I find that as a British person, because obviously what Roman stuff around us, modern Britain and Roman ruins, <laughs> that's not the same. There's a disconnect. But when I go to Italy, I'm like, hey, you guys understand it. And you, you've even grown your, you know, your cities, your, your communities around some of it. And they're very proud of it. And I I kind of find that really beautiful. So when you go there, I think that's the other thing, because it feels like part of modern Italian living as well. Um, So it's even brings it closer to you. So you might be listening to this thinking I'm obsessed with Italy and you'd be right. I'm obsessed with Italy. I'm thinking about just retiring there, living in Tuscany, drinking the wine. I mean, the food alone is a great reason, but also amazing food, amazing wine and ruins like... I don't know what else I would want. I am so sad because lots of things have come out about my childhood, including we had a farm in like in the mountains up in in a town above Naples, sort of not far from Pompeii for like many generations that was there for so long and eventually had to be sold, I think, in the 80s because nobody would go back and pay the taxes because you had to go back every year to pay the taxes. And I'm like, if you just waited 20 years. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's so annoying. Because um, I was about to suggest that we go and start our own, I don't know, classical school over there where we could just do our own thing, like a weird commune. I mean, it, it would have been the perfect commune place. It was just up high in the hills, so many acres, lots of drunk chickens. That's another story. Drunk chickens? Well, that's been a fun podcast. I'm going now. <laughs> Let's leave it there. I'm off, I'm off to plan my, my time in Italy. I think the other thing I just wanted to add is My grandfather was so proud of his heritage and so proud of everything stemming from the classical world. When he came to America as an immigrant, like that heritage is is there, it's present in the in the DNA of Americans, but it's also so different and removed. And I think that was one of the things that he struggled with. I wish he was still around because all the work we've done in this podcast, he would both love and hate because we are quite feminist and you know, we're talking about a man who would be in his nineties. We are two women talking. But also what I would love to do is just interrogate what he learned about classics when he was growing up and how that's changed in the past, you know, 90 years, what it looks like from someone who grew up during, you know, the era of Mussolini. 
when things were quite different in a really rural environment. Yeah, and the Mussolini thing's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's so there's so much of a resurrection of Roman iconography and, you know, kind of connection with the with the regime. But it's interesting what you say about kind of what it might feel like to come over to the US as an immigrant, an Italian immigrant, and um have that experience there. That's a really fascinating point. Uh, and not something I have. I mean, obviously, Britain is, is has has a similar thing. Like both my parents are immigrants, for example. But I think for the states, it has obviously a slightly different story to it. So, yeah, interesting. So, Jasmine, your profiles mentioned that your experience with classics came when you attended university. And what was it like to be introduced to these stories? And what myth or historical facts made you fall in love with the subject in a more professional sense? Made you want to dedicate your life to it, I suppose? I mean, you're right. I did. I began anything ancient at 18. So I had like no clue. I now see that that was a completely insane choice. I had cajones, and I think I, can, I think you will understand that word very, very well in America. So I was like, right, I was like, I'm just going to do this. So yes, I did it. I was like, right, let me do it. And I picked something called Ancient World Studies, and I, I went to uh, University College London. So it was a really well-known school for ancient stuff in general, not just classics. So I did kind of all of it. I sort of flirted with a whole lot, is what I'm saying. So in that sense, I guess it was loads of little pockets of things. But the commonality, I think, was I ended up, increasingly picking courses from the Institute of Archaeology. That links back to, I guess, that feeling in Pompeii, right? Because that was only like three years before at that point. And so it was all the kind of tangible things that you can get through archaeology. So I loved, less so like looking at buildings. I was never quite into the buildings, but I loved the idea of artefacts, especially like artefacts found in a domestic setting or things that like regular folk had. Or crazy stuff, like, you know, votive offerings or things that, you know, kind of had like, you know, um, curse tablets that were just really odd. You know, they had like a magic, like made up languages and odd things. So I kind of, I loved all of that. And I ended up doing a lot more of the archaeology. I would say like 50% of my degree or maybe a bit more is archaeological based. And then the rest of it was language. I'll be honest. So I didn't want to do an ancient language. I sort of freaked out. Um, I did, it didn't have a good reputation in my, when I was at school. I did French at school and my mum was like multilingual. So I have a good, very good like ability with language. But I was just like, nah, not doing that. And so when they said you've got to learn, you had to learn an ancient language, they said you've got, you've got to do Latin or Greek. I only picked Latin because I was like, same outfit. That's going to be easier. <laughs> I just did that. What I didn't know is when I started doing it, how much I love it. And it's because of the puzzle, the puzzle element, right? I loved how logical it was and this kind of puzzling, like kind of, oh, how does this fit together? And that was really new to me because I was used to kind of asking for, oh, should we do in Kula de Tomate or something in, in, for, you know, instead? And I, don't, I was like, this is something that I kind of like to get into. So although I said the archaeology, it was quite nice having these new experiences too and having a, like, a mixture of all of them. And I think that's affected my work today because, rarely do I stay, stick in one discipline I'm always I'm all over the place with my discipline so every time I write something talk about something whatever it is I always weave together those disciplines to give a full picture that's what we do I know everyone who does ancient stuff you don't just go I'm only going to look at this uh, even if your interest is only in literary sources you're still going to provide contextual information through the other sources anyway so but I kind of love anything where you really have to pull all the resources together um to get to get a a big picture so in terms of stories so although I have spent a lot of time in mythology later on 
I would say that that's happened to me later in my life where I've come to mythology as a specific area. You know, I, I did the obligatory nature of Greek myths read G.S. Kirk, which is like, you know, standard reading. That was the first time I came across um, the idea that myths meant something. I was like, oh, my God, they're not just stories. They mean something. And then um, it wasn't until um, I, t- I mean, obviously in teaching, you talk about this a lot more, but until my own personal interest in it was resurrected when I did my master's degree, which was in 2017. So that's when I went mythology and me are best friends. I need to carry on with this. So I, I picked it up then. So actually, I'm, I'm somebody, an example of somebody that really came to that passion later in life. So I'm a big advocate for like, if you like it, you can pick it up anytime. You don't need to be going back and having all this experience of it just pick it up run with it love it you can study as and when you want and that's my mythology kind of connection really I absolutely love what you said about how you came to it in bits and pieces because I do think connection comes from a variety of places and one of the things that our podcast has taught me and we started our podcast about five years ago now is that understanding the larger world doesn't just come from understanding the stories or the curse tablets or the artifacts, it comes from all the different places that sort of whisper to you and build this picture. So yeah, connection to me is is what drags you in. I think that's a great way of teaching and learning about the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, that underpins everything. I totally agree with you. But the other thing that I wanted to say is I don't know how old you ladies are. I mean, I can see these guys on Zoom, on the videos. They look very young and fresh. But the reason I make that point about age is also because your interests are always changing, right? Your experience is always changing. So I've been doing classics now for 22 years. So the very first things I was interested in are completely different to what what I'm interested in now. So, for example, when I became a parent, I got a lot more interested in, I mean, I had a difficult time when my son was born. So for me, I was like, oh, my God, motherhood has become a bit more interesting to me. What did ancient, how did they cope with this stuff? Because I know that we don't hear about that very much. I just, it just made me think about it in a different way, even if I couldn't exactly answer that inquiry. And I love that. Like, I don't have to be married to the same thing. I think that a professor might, I mean, professors obviously change their all the time what they're looking at. But I think, you know, you if you go down the academia route, you sort of slightly marry yourself into certain different, <laughs> this is the route I'm going. So if you write a PhD and it's literary, it's not that you can't go across to archaeology. It's just it becomes more and, dif- more, and more difficult, right? But someone like me, a free agent, I'm not, I, I don't feel like I need to do that. I'm not trying to prove myself in an academic career. And there are certain like no-go areas for me that I just have never been able to find interesting. Example being Roman economy. That's not going to ever happen for me. No disrespect to anyone doing it, because thank God some people are interested in Roman economy. But there's no, there's, there's no chance. It's also because I'm not interested in the economy in general. It's also it's all right to not like bits of it. You don't have to love it all. And no disrespect to colleagues working in those fields. But I'm like, that's your gig. You, en- you enjoy it. And they might not like my stuff. That's cool. So I think chopping and changing as well, and just it doesn't really matter. You don't have to wedge yourself to a particular type or genre or thing. You can adapt to it. I love that. We experienced this too when we uh, last season. We really left the Greco-Roman world because we we felt a little bit burnt out. So what we did was we went to somewhere else in the ancient world and talked about ancient mysteries. And I think it's it's something we're only able to do because we are just like you, Jasmine. We're free agents. Like we are not. Writing dissertations, we're not advancing the scholarship in the same way that someone in academia is. So we're able to go to different places and find that passion and that connection somewhere else. Yeah, 
Exactly. And I'm, I'm saying that as a privilege. I see that as a privilege. I understand. This is not a, a damnation against those, like you say, working really hard in the field to knowledge. No, they're doing the work that allows us to do other things. <laughs> like... They're doing the actual work that we are not doing. <laughs> I, I guess it depends on how you guys, uh, I don't know if you use labels on yourself, but like I haven't really found the word yet for exactly what I am. I mean, I think the closest thing I've come to is like public historian, but only because that label exists already. It doesn't still quite fit because I'm also mega creative. Like I'm about to launch my own classics brand, which we can talk about in a, in a bit, but it's like a mashup of education, advocating for things, but being really creative and like you guys at your pod as well like it's a really creative industry uh, and writing you know really creative so I don't really know what I am I don't know what to call it you know the thing that we are and I think it's because it's quite new uh, the thing that we're doing all of you know as a collective group of individuals that are working in these these areas it's uh, quite a new thing. You've been an educator for 20 years in lots of different schools right and um I know accessibility is a big passion of yours. Uh, What do you think needs to be done in the education world or perhaps more broadly to make the classics accessible to more people? This is actually a a super complex uh, answer. And I'm going to try and just give broad strokes because it's very detailed. And the reason I, I kind of preface with that is because it matters what context you're in. We can't just have like a slapdash approach and this is what we're going to do, everyone. Because this is going to be a massive, massive shock to people all people are different we can't just go right let's just make everyone do latin at school because that'll be fine that just doesn't make any sense so this is why it's very complex because in the educational setting if we begin there because let's be real that's where a lot of people if they have the opportunity start their relationship with any subject let's not worry about classics for a moment but they they, that's where you learn to like something right like my son he's six uh, annoyingly he's hardcore down the science route at the moment and how does he know he loves that? I mean, it's because his, first of all, because his dad is, is science, so maybe that's what it is. But it's also because you know he's experiencing these these subjects in school, t- and he's learning that he enjoys that kind of thinking. So that that's that's one of the things we need to get kids actually having a chance with it. In the UK, that that is part of um, the primary school curriculum, elementary school curriculum, but um, it's it's a bit kind of wishy washy. Not every school has to do it. It's not for very long. Uh, it's not embedded. So that's the first thing. We need to give as many kids as much chance to experience it. And I don't mean just chuck it on for some. We have this thing like where they might put it on for enrichment, like, oh, let's get some smart kids to look at the Romans. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm about. So that's the first thing. And I think as you then, that evolves out of, you know, the school setting or, you know, throughout school, we need to be changing our approach then to how we do it. So again, depending on the demographic or the individual that's learning it, the approach needs to change. So that's quite difficult for schools, right? Because obviously they're beholden to qualifications. So the people that the, the, the people that make the qualifications have a lot of power. So they need to kind of be in on this gig as well. But I, I think if you're just a teacher and you're thinking, how can I adapt this material? You're someone in the educational context. What can I do? That is where making it relevant is the most important thing you can do. In all my years of teaching, and I'm very proud to say that my, you know, I was very focused on making sure my students enjoyed it, number one. And it's like, how are they going to enjoy it? Because let's be real, you what you enjoyed at school, you carried on with. So what it's about is about like, how are you going to engage young people? And, it, and people, young people increasingly in the modern world as well, need you to show them what the why. So everything has to be led with the why. You can't start a lesson and go, hey, I want to talk about Julius Caesar. Who cares? 
Like, especially if you don't know who the guy is. Right, I don't care. I don't, I don't really fancy chatting about that guy. Who is he? Oh, he's going to be so mad to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> he's listening right now. <laughs> Let's be real. None of the ancients would have liked me because I'm too much. I'm too. I'm, I'm a woman and I speak really loudly and I don't let people talk crap. So they're going to hate me. We're all women talking. They wouldn't listen to this podcast anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I would say you have a shot with Julius Caesar because he did like powerful women. He wanted to like, you know, be with powerful women. And uses connections to powerful women to advantage, let's be clear. Absolutely. He was an he was an absolute slippery snake, but you know. <laughs> He'd let you talk. <laughs> Unless we uncover some kind of evidence that Julius Caesar looked exactly like Henry Cavill, I'm probably not interested. Uh, <laughs> Spoiler, he did not look like Henry Cavill. <laughs> I just think we need to also be encouraging just adults. <laughs> So like I have met so many people in my life. The sto- I mean, I'm sure you you will have as well. Where the story is, I kind of love all this stuff. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to find the stuff. I don't know any. I, or also this kind of like there's a fear that I think comes with this concept that classics is an elitist subject. And so if I need to be so clever to do it, and now I'm doubting myself. And, I, and that's especially true of languages, of course. And so I think adults come with like a bit of an emotional baggage attached to it. And when I've met these adults and they're like, I mean, I, I can th- I'm not going to name this person because it's not fair. But I think of somebody, somebody that I know really, really well, who is just a regular adult doing their life, no connection to classics, really wants to learn, but just doesn't know how to do it. And it sort of has a bit of a fear. And I think that's where us talking about that and acknowledging that, because that is something our subject has created. We haven't created it, but it is a reality. So I think we have to be real about that and we have to expose that a little bit for people and go, we know that's there. And also, you know, that that thread of the why continues there as well, doesn't it? That's another reason why a lot of the stuff I do has a bit of humour in because it's just, that's how I am anyway. <laughs> so I can't really turn it off, to be honest. But also, I just think that helps break down the barrier of elitism because when you have, let's be honest, you've sat in front of these individuals, I'm, again, no naming anyone, but when you when you summon up an image of a classicist in your head, you've probably got a certain image that you're thinking of. And so that, you know, if we think that, and I happen to know, so I know a lot of classicists in this country, especially, and they're very diverse, but actually, in reality, there is this dominating, you know, type of individual. So if we think that, can you imagine what it's like from the outside? So these are all the things I want to do. So it's kind of like how teaching it more, how we're teaching it, leading with the why. And, you know, kind of when we're talking to people, really acknowledge like openly the problems with our subject and do our best to change it, which is the what you're doing with your work and what I'm doing with my work. I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, This is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. connect to that because I think that there absolutely is somebody you think of when you think of who a classicist is. That's probably um, a white man who comes from a wealthy background. And if you are 
non-white, if you're a woman, if you're queer, if you come from a working class background, it's not only that you are presenting a different picture of what a classicist can look like, but you're also coming at it from a different mindset where you are interested in different things. So you're going to go after different stories. So we don't just get the stories of, of rich white men in the classics. We get other stories because there are those other stories out there. And I just want to I also want to add, because I always add this, if you're coming at it from a neurodiverse background where you are dyslexic like I am or you're ADHD, a lot of times you see these as subjects where they require an intense amount of hyper focus that is sometimes daunting. I found most people in the history community online to be incredibly accepting, but I did come into this field feeling like I am a fraud. I can't remember most of the Latin I knew and I really struggle with reading and my focus. How am I going to do this? We've done it anyway somehow. And I think that's why I keep putting it out on the podcast because I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. And I think that visibility, if you're neurodiverse, is super important. Yeah, I totally understand. And we're doing that all in our own different ways, right? Because I have like three of those tick boxes. I'm working class, I'm mixed race, and I'm female. Uh, so like, well, let's just tick the boxes. And I'm really happy. I'm very open book. I'm happy to talk about how that's affected me. That's fine. And it is it is interesting because the more I'm doing that, the more people embrace that. And I'm really happy. I'm doing it for exactly the same reasons. I'm like, you don't expect someone like me to be doing what I'm doing, especially when you're working in audio. People can't always see you. They don't know you like you're, some of your listeners today. They're not going to know who I am. They might not have heard of my work. So and they can't see me necessarily. So it's like, you know, they can hear that and they can see. Right, OK. And what's hard about it? And I don't know how you, you guys have experienced this, but the more I do that, certain communities embrace it but i have started to get more abuse about it and i to be honest i could not care less they can come at me i'm from east london ain't nothing there's nothing you people have got that's going to bother me right but do you know what it makes me worry because i think that just goes to show how hard it is for people to be different in this in this particular i mean it's it's hard for everyone trying to be different in anything that is kind of homogenous right but it's really interesting to me because the more i do it the more i notice that coming up and like why are you constantly talking about being mixed race i'm like because how do people need to know that that i'm doing that and i'm representing my community because how many pakistani classicists do you people know you know it's not really certainly certainly not in the they probably are more in academia but certainly not in a public facing job you know so it's not as easy as what i'm trying to say so i'm sure you both recognize that in your own work and everything but i'm just going to say i'm not going to stop doing it and i'm and i'm very genuine and i'm not going to stop doing it because people need to see that it's okay if I'm one of those people that can make that happen for someone, then I, I, I'm, I'm happy to take any blows. I'm already bothered. And it, it's, it's a little bit of a worry. The more the profile gets you know, bigger and the more I'm work I'm doing, you're like, oh, I can talk a big game. But what is it really like to get so much of that? Um, and it's where the internet can be a bit of a tough place right, to be. So I think this is nice for me to talk about because I haven't had the opportunity to explain that yet, probably in many podcasts, because I do a lot of podcasts where I'm talking about a topic right, rather than me. But I think if you are listening to this, I think it's really important that you you try and understand why people are making those comments, why why we are sharing elements of our personal backgrounds. It's not because I expect you to go, oh, didn't. It's because I want you to see that people like me can do it. I don't need your like pat on the back. It's all good. Thank you for giving it. But I don't need it. I'm here here to represent my communities. And I'm really glad that you guys are doing it for your communities and anyone working in the classical field that is bucking the trend. The more you speak up about who you are and have the confidence to do that, the more you're going to make the change that we need to 
desperately make in this in this subject. Jen and I uh, just wrote a book, Women of Myth, and we were chatting with you online in some capacity. And you had mentioned that you also were writing a book about women in world mythology. And we were super interested to hear about what your book was about and how you were going to tackle it because we're really interested in this subject. So um, would you like to tell us about that project and how you're approaching it and your vision for your book? Absolutely. So it's in its infancy. So that's my little immediate caveat because obviously some things I haven't got a clue about. If you think you, if you're sitting there thinking oh, that all authors know what they're writing about, bit of, that's a bit of a fallacy. All right, I have a direction. Okay, so what I wanted to do, I'll begin with like the general and, and move into the topic. But I really wanted to do something that was cross cultural. So because um, my interests are really diverse, as I hope I've explained, I was like, I really want to look at a theme across different cultures. I'm big into feminist takes on things. But obviously, and I know you guys will agree, but like, you know, making sure it's, it's, it's not overtly feminist. So you come away from the realities of what you're looking at. So I wanted to have a feminist take on something. And then um, I read some really interesting articles about diff- a few different goddesses. And I thought, OK, goddesses feel like a really interesting space for me to explore these concepts. So I wanted it to be diverse because part of it is... Uh, and ex- it's, an, it's going to be the general theme will be an examination of feminine qualities in goddesses with a view to kind of subverting all of that because when you look at ancient cultures and I'm again I'm generalizing here and this is where I promise the book will be better than this but and it's already pretty good I mean <laughs> I know exactly I'm like where can I pre-order <laughs> <laughs> I need to write it first so I wanted to spotlight different cultures and hopefully cultures that some of us recognise and are more familiar with, but also ones that we aren't familiar with. I mean, specifically here in the West. So you're going to kind of get a whistle-stop tour. And the idea is that we look at look at goddesses in each of their individual cultural contexts. That's going to be really important to point out. So there'll be different chapters on different goddesses from different cultures with the context provided. And it's kind of an exploration of their mythology, but also that, you know, kind of, like I said, the historical context, the archaeological context too, to kind of get us to look at that goddess through the eyes of the people of the times. That's really important. And to really just go, whole feminine, masculine dichotomy thing that's been going on. Is that really a thing? And it's like, when you look at it in this way, and, you know, what's so fascinating about the research so far is there's so many interesting goddesses where, those edges between what we perceive as masculine and feminine are very blurred. This is basically like any gender can read this book. This is about qualities and about smashing down those very, very firm boundaries that we have inherited today through the, through the, the context of the goddess. So what I found is people have worked in this space and there are lots of really fantastic books that work on a goddess or a certain small group of goddesses, but it's pretty bold to go across a number of goddesses from different cultures and um there are books that exist that do that but perhaps they're not as uh, up to date so um it's a very new take on these things um i only do big bold things so i'm obviously slightly terrified about it but i know i'm i'm loving it i'm loving it because it's giving it's also tapping into my my interest in different cultures and it's a real academic challenge that I, i'm really enjoying so watch this space i can't say much more about it at the moment in terms of what it's called because I have a working title for it, which I think it will be, but uh, I can't really say what that is at the moment. Uh, and I can't tell you when it'll be out or the publisher or anything at the moment. So I'll just, just give me a bit of time and then I can update people later. Is there a feminine figure, a goddess that you have discovered throughout your research so far that you didn't know about before and that you're really excited about telling the world about? 
Yeah, for sure. Like uh, the goddess Inanna or Ishtar, I know she's in your book as well. For me, I focus on Inanna because what I didn't want to do, again, there is, there is, as you will know from your own book and research, there is such a kind of confusion about these goddesses and their individual cults and kind of where does one start and one end, the conflation of the two. Uh, and that was quite murky. And obviously this is, a, because it won't shock anyone, this is an accessible book for the general public. So um, it's not that I won't acknowledge that. I didn't want to get into that. So I thought easier to look at the Sumerian context only. So looking at her has been really, really, really fascinating. And I had a, I would say, a kind of surface level understanding of Sumerian culture before I went into it. Um, but it was quite new to me. I mean, as a figure, she fascinates me because, you know, here we are looking at the very earliest known civilizations. And, you know, the, the whole concept of gender is so much more blurred than we think it is. And it's a very surprising exploration of a cult, a very, very ancient culture. Uh, and it did things that I didn't quite fully expect it would do. Um, and you have to read the book to know what I mean. But what I really love about her is just, you know, not, what she symbolises and all of the different qualities that she you know, kind of has are so interesting to us in terms of breaking down this kind of gender terms of feminine and masculine. The particular fact that I love is that she had these priests that were part of her worship called the Gala. They are gender neutral um, in, in that respect, in many respects, feminine, masculine, different different genders. So I, I kind of loved that it's not just something that you can, you know, analyse. It's actually physically happening in the ritual around her, her worship as well. So the Gala are really, really fascinating. So I just love that. And then next minute I'll be on to another culture. You know, then that'll be that chapter done and I'll be on to another culture. So I love all this work that's going on in this space at the moment. Um, there's quite a lot of people that are writing in this way, and I, I really love it. I think it's really powerful. I completely agree, and I, I also find this fascinating. We covered um, Ishtar, who is, like I guess, the Akkadian version of this. They really did combine Sumerian and Akkadian traditions with the Enhedwana hymns, and a lot of that was um, really like gender non-conforming as well. So we really went with that with our portrayal of Ishtar, which is not how we usually see her portrayed, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that, I mean, that's where there, there's a bit of complexity isn't there, in terms of the evidence and how you're going to look at the evidence because of the dating of all of this. But whatever you look at it, depending if you're going to allow the conflation, what you're going to do. And, and I think that would just surprise people. We're talking about ancient Iraq in terms of location. What dominates our mind is the strong feeling of classical patriarchy, especially in the West. When we think ancient, we think of that. I'm not saying that that didn't exist. I am. But I'm trying to look at the boundaries, the peripheries, the edges, the things that show you that actually it's not quite as rigid as that. Because, you know, people kick against patriarchy, shock horror. How do they do that? You know, and, and often in the worship of goddess, we get we get that. We get people, you know, owning that space and allowing, you know, kind of letting, I to say, it feels like letting the belt out after a big meal or whatever, but allowing yourself some space to expand into your own identity. And that's why the goddesses thing is so is because it's, it's a sacred space. So there's a protection element right there when you're dealing with sacred spaces. So I'm excited for the ones to come. I've got quite a few that are going to be completely brand new cultures to me. I know very little about. So that's going to be really, really cool because I'm going to be in the library forever. Sounds like an ideal Saturday night. I know. I know. <laughs> I know I'm talking to the right people when we talk about the, being in a library. It's like, oh, I get to be in a library. I do think that the worship, like the sacred worship of goddesses and even some gods Dionysus is the one who pops to mind because he's always in, in my mind 
it, it does show a lot of subversion of, you know, the patriarchy because there were certain elements that goddesses had in particular. I mean, Artemis, we did a whole episode on her. She it was such a fascinating ball of contradictions. Dionysus is a ball of contradictions. Aphrodite, I'm just thinking Greco-Roman at the moment, but outside of that, there are many like Atargatis and so many goddesses who come from rigid patriarchal cultures and did other things. Huidica was is another fascinating one as well. She's super fascinating. So yeah, I think looking into the worship of goddesses does tell you a lot about the culture and how they functioned, how rigid the patriarchy was and where the sort of release valve was for the patriarchy sometimes. Yeah, that's interesting. You, uh, it's interesting that you say that because obviously I'm at the beginning of, of my uh, my feelings about this. But in some ways so far, I don't think I would say it's a reflection of societal views of patriarchy. I would say it's a, a safer space for people to, to, to kind of subvert that. So what I found so far is that like Sumerian culture is a patriarchal culture still, but within the worship of goddesses, I mean, it's not just here. There are some really cool things about potentially how Sumerian women lived, uh, regular Sumerian women. But I'm less about, I don't know if this is what you were saying, so do just say if, you, if I've got this wrong from what you were saying, but I'm less about looking at the goddess. It's a kind of mirror, what you're describing, I think, is a mirror theory where you're kind of looking at how goddesses relate to what's going on in culture. And that's I'm not, that's a valid way to look at it. But I'm sort of doing the opposite in some ways. I'm sort of suggesting that these are sacred spaces. But importantly, importantly, regular people are part of those sacred spaces. And those people are also part of culture, right, of society. But it might be that they might be more normative out in that society, behaving as they should in nice patriarchy. But when you enter the sacred space of the goddess, that you're able to be something else. And that's where they're playing with identity. So that's kind of what I'm hoping I find in all of these ancient cultures. Yeah, I think that there's there's a real thread that we found because we did a whole series on our podcast about gender nonconforming people in mythology and history, specifically in the classical world. What I found, I'm sure, Jen, you could corroborate this, is that frequently being gender nonconforming was a province of the gods and the goddesses. That was a, a quality of gods. Yeah, but, but because they're non-human and they can behave in certain different, more kind of fluid ways than what we can as, uh, what has been imposed on us as human beings. So I get that. Yeah, it's like a it's like a, a certain space. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting. Yes, but also there's the sacred place of worship where you see people being able to have power and agency that they don't normally have in their outside roles because of their devotion to their, their goddess. Usually it's a goddess. Again, the worship of Artemis is absolutely fascinating. We've talked about it. I can't wait to see what you do in your book about it. Aphrodite is another really good one. Inanna and Ishtar. But there are certain things, um, Hestia is another one, where people who may live in a strict patriarchal society get certain, I don't want to say benefits, but they get certain privileges as a result of being in service to a goddess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess, I guess it's interesting because we can equate this to people's um, feelings today uh, about gender. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about and how have you what you have in your media narrative about this but you know I know much more about in the UK and for me it's about you know I think that when you speak to people and they're thinking about what are the barriers for them feeling like they can have their own identity their gender own gender identity and it's always around safety 
creating safety and when they feel like they're in a safe space that they can explain if they don't want to or whatever but to be themselves and so that's what I think you're getting a little bit in these in these goddess cultures and I you know there's obviously we haven't really spoken about this and we won't because otherwise it'll go off on a massive tangent but we obviously there's mystery cults as well to look at so obviously we, we still don't know what they are all the time what happened in them and you know there, that's there's a lot of power in that again isn't there if you're somebody that's like okay I don't quite fit into this mold that you're we're looking at so it's just a fascinating space to look at so I'm super pumped for it and slightly daunted by the prospect of writing my first book but I'm going to get it done that's what I do but I'm, I'm loving it and I really hope for people when they read it the whole point again is it's related I want it to be relatable and empowering for people so there will be some elements in it there may be some myth retelling elements to it I'm still working on what kind of format I want it to have so hopefully it will also be uh, in that way a bit emotive and, and re- you know relate to people rather than just bog standard like you know history book of information. Absolutely, it, it sounds like such a fascinating project and really aligned with our interests as well. So I really can't wait to see what you do with it. a goddess that you've come across in your research for world mythology or we could cover greek mythology that you really feel like you identify with the most so far probably athena Ooh, bold <laughs> choice <laughs> do you know what it is with her is i mean like basically the, the real answer is not necessarily very many of them and maybe that says a little bit about my own background and how i feel about my own identity i'm like Bleh. but i think the thing the reason i quite like athena but there's a few things that I like about her. But the kind of qualities that she has, I guess the, the things that she, you know, her kind of areas of influence are really kind of hardcore things, you know, wisdom. I like that. Take a bit of that, you know, kind of the war. But the cool bit of the strategy of war, you know, the intelligence side, not just hacking people to death. We'll leave that to leave that to Aries. And I think that there's something about her that is this, again, people might disagree with this, but there is, such a massive powerful force in her in these areas but it can actually be quite underplayed or misunderstood or kind of maligned or presented as vengeful at times and just kind of like meh that's what she is her domains are really powerful domains this is not anyone going I'm not like I'm not violent I'm not going around wanting to start wars with people but I think like you know like having wisdom as a fit in a female goddess is quite it's quite a big it's quite a big thing <laughs> so I've always quite admired her for that in some ways and I just I just get a kick-ass vibe from her I've just always had a bit of a kick-ass vibe from her like she doesn't take any rubbish you know what I mean there's a sort of empowerment in her that I quite I quite enjoy but it's quite a hard question because I just feel like I want to chop up loads of them and make a new one that would properly fit what I think I am I think that's fair. I feel similarly, you know, if someone asked me, it depends on the day and what I'm feeling like. I guess if Jen asked me what goddess I most identify with, depending on how cute my outfit is and how great my makeup is, I might say Aphrodite. I might say Dionysus. I don't know. (laughs) I think for me, like as well, I I think I'm going to be, I think I'm going to have, if I went to world mythology rather than classical for a moment, I think I'm about to find her in this book. I think I'm going to find one that I'm like, there you go. I've got, I've got a feeling because already Inanna's up there with like, I'm like, yes, Inanna, I'm, I'm up for that. But I think this is the thing about saying it because I'm, because I'm mixed race as well. Like I want to see, like I ha- I'm going to be exploring Indian goddesses, for example, which is my, you know, my ancestry. And I think that's going to be really fascinating for me because like you were saying, Jen, with your Italian heritage and you feel a little bit of that in your blood, like 
I haven't really explored like South Asian cultures before, only again in a sort of more superficial way. So that's going to be really interesting how I feel about that one, because that's going to speak to me personally and my identity and my culture. So I wonder if that that will feel more powerful to me, easier for me to make that connection. Absolutely. And there's such rich territory there too. Are there any monsters that are sort of coded female in world mythology or Greek mythology that are your favorite and why? And I use the word monsters in quotation marks because I almost always come down on the side of the monster. That's probably my main specialism is monster myth anyway. So that's why I wrote my uh, MA dissertation. I do a lot of work in that space now. I can't get past the image of what I always choose. So I need to really have an intellectual thought. I really need to go and have a little chat with myself because I always pick the chimera. I love the chimera. But the reason I suddenly need to have a little word with myself is because the first reason I pick it, it says a lot about who I am, is I just find the goat so hilarious that I can't pick anything else. <laughs> Remind me what a chimera is. It's a goat head. Yeah, and it's lion and snake tail. So it's kind of like this odd mashup of stuff. My MA thesis was on the chimera. So I wrote, I did a lot of work on the chimera as well. It's just, I should have a much more intelligent answer. But I'm always like, the goat is so funny. I need to laugh. So I was on the pod the other day talking about this and I was just like, the goat is just so hilarious. So the reason that there are, there are some more serious reasons why I like, because I love the symbolism of the chimera because, because not to be to sort of slightly pun intended, it's multifaceted. There's lots of elements of the chimera that are really interesting. So each of those animals symbolizes something. The grouping of the animals symbolizes something. I'm big into um, when monsters uh, relate to the landscape. So uh, that's what a lot of my work was on. So the chimera has a really interesting um, background in the literary sources that relate her to um, areas of Turkey that are volcanic. So you kind of have a really interesting connection to the landscape there. So I love I love rationalization of myth and monsters are a really cool way to look at that because there's quite a rich um, background there, richer source material. That's what I'm trying to say. But the chimera, I just think she's fascinating. And I think what's also fascinating is like when you look at the iconography, you get this kind of opposition, this juxtaposition of the chimera with Pegasus as a male you know, figure. Is the chimera female? Almost certainly, yes. That is the overwhelming feeling about the gender of the chimera. But what you get is you get this kind of really interesting composition on artwork um, of the fight between the chimera. I know it's Bellerophon, but we're just talking over there. The, the chimera and, and Pegasus, which is, again, a bit of a sort of male-female combative thing. And I think female monsters are all fascinating for billions of reasons. But I think the one thing that I find really interesting is why they're extra scary often in ancient cultures and usually related to the fact that they have the ability to procreate and we could have more scary monsters. I find that really, really particularly interesting. Monsters are brilliant because they mean so much more, don't they, than what you see on the surface. Oh, yeah. We had a monster section in our book and the monster section was really interesting. It's just like the qualities that different people would choose to assign to monsters and why those qualities were quote unquote monstrous was an interesting thought to us, especially when you're talking female monsters. Did you have the did you have the Lamia in there? I, I haven't looked at it yet. You had, did you have the Lamia in the book? No, we couldn't. But I was going to say the Lamia and the Ambusa are two of my favorites. Yeah, we covered the Lamia from a Greek myth perspective and maybe a Mesopotamian myth perspective in an episode we did on ancient vampires. And she also crops up when you study Lilith because there are some translations of the Bible that call her Lamia. And the, the chimera just made me think of the Ambusa again because she's got that 
leg of brass and a leg of an ass or a donkey. And you're just like, you think she's a lady, but she's a vampire, sort of. (laughs) It's just, I always have this image of this, like, I'm going to say it's a bloke. And he's just sitting by, just sitting by a river one day and he goes, I'm going to make up a monster. And I'm gonna call. I'm, I know I'm gonna put. It just feels like a, a, a like a long a long joke that went too far sometimes. Because you know, ultimately these are made up stories, right? So someone at some point, this tradition had to begin with someone telling this story of this individual, this monster, this whatever it is. Obviously, I get that they're inherited from different cultures sometimes. So you know, you might have to go back further into other cultures. But at some point, someone just sat around the fire and go, "I got one." <laughs> here's this crazy creature and I just want to meet that guy I, or it could be a woman of course but I just want to meet that person that did that and just go do you know what's going on now thousands of years later I'm writing MA thesis on this people write books about it people are talking about it analysing it it's, it's symbolism I think it later obviously gets its symbolism I don't think it does in the original bit but anyway it's just, it's just really interesting isn't it because ultimately they are creations of the mind there is a common thread of women with sort of lower halves that are deer, horse, donkeys, camel. It seems to go across a lot of different cultures. So I don't know if you'll find that in your research. But like, as we were finishing the book, I was like, that's another one with a, with a lower half that is sort of... Ungulate. The lower half is an ungulate is a thing. Ungulate. Yeah, hooved. That's really interesting. I wonder if that's because a lot of that part of the body is concealed so it, it speaks to the fear that men have of um not knowing what's <laughs> literally what not knowing what's going under underneath those skirts not knowing what that is there's a reason there's probably it's rarely the i mean i know medusa is a, a very famous example where it's the head right but you know largely it's not as you say um and i think that if you think about what they're wearing for clothing etc there is a, myst- a mystique on that lower half but also it will speak to genitalia as well, won't it? And, and procreation again and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there's always a reason, right? I mean, there is even a reason for the goat. There is a reason for the goat. But I just find it funny. This is what I mean about not having to be too serious sometimes because it is just funny, some of it. That is funny. You can laugh at that for 10 minutes. It absolutely is. I mean, but it, it's such an interesting point that you bring up that I didn't even think about is like men's fear of of the difference of women. So the idea of a female monster that has a lower half being an animal or something like that is kind of, it, first off, it's through a male gaze, which I didn't even think about before, but it is. And it speaks to um, men's fear of the physical differences of women and women's bodies and their their capabilities, perhaps. My mind is blown. <laughs> Yeah, well, it just it just makes some sense. I think that's where jumping quickly to the psychology of something and the and the, the element of phobia is uh, really important because that's what I mean about a reminder that the everything in mythology is a creation of the human mind. What are monsters? It's an expression. It's an outward expression of our own fears. If you separate it from yourself, you can look at it from a safe distance much harder to look at the monster within it's much easier to separate it from you look over there that's where you get all these different examples of monsters to express various different human fears and it's why they evolve over time it's why nothing is static it's why we get new literary traditions new iconographic traditions you get this changing even if it's the same figure because we are changing and our phobias are changing and society is changing so that's why the female monsters are so interesting because most of these are patriarchies. And so that's where it is the male fear. That's where we can say it's the male fear of stuff. 
I love that because again, that's something I've come. This is one of the examples that I came to later. So this is something I came to in 2017 as part of my master's degree, and I just thought I'm loving this. I'm loving this this element of you. You really have to dig deep into human psychology if you're dealing with monsters. And I think you probably have to do a lot of things to do with the ancient world. But actually, psychology, as when you think about the expression of what it could mean. Actually, that's a really, really clear lens with which to look at stuff. I think it makes it really much easier to understand if there is symbolism. Well, there was always symbolism, but what the symbolism is actually about. I always start there and then go from that perspective. And I find that's that's given me a really detailed and deep understanding of monsters in their different contexts. Love a monster. Again, talking about being relatable again, this is we you can understand this because our fears might be different now. They're mostly fears about our own politicians. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's that's fair. And our dying planet, you know. (laughs) Yes, exactly, though. Those are the, if you think, those are the tensions and the anxieties we have today. But there's loads of really interesting stuff from, like, like the wild and the kind of where the wild has moved to. So, like, we have to talk about, like, boundary of of, of living and, and where the wild is now. And there's a lot of, there's a lot on that to look at. So do you have any other projects that you want people to know about in the works? Yes, I do have some, some cool things going on. So I've, I've launched a brand called Legit Threads, which uh, you can go online and look at. It does international shipping. And it's loads of like classically inspired designs on clothing and like mugs and tote bags and stuff and artwork um, that I've all designed myself. So hopefully it's a kind of like fun way to kind of play with classics. But also it's a bit of a, like, a, I'm trying to start a bit of a movement. So it's kind of like if you wear this stuff, it's like you're a bit like we mentioned about people that are being different in our community. It's like kind of your way of showing that you're part of that. And there's one little, there's one collection as well where I donate 20% of the profits to uh, the Malala Fund as well for uh, girls, ed- education of girls as well. So just check it out. If you like it, great, buy something. And it's uh, legit-threads.com. Or if you just go, like you say, if you just go on my Instagram and look up Jasmine Elmer, and follow me all the links are there you can go and get it all from that as well and my website's on there and everything like that and also my podcast legit classics which you can go and see now there's 10 episodes there and i'm going to resurrect that soon as well uh so if you love the stuff come come have a little listen jasmine where can people find you on twitter instagram the social media world so i'm on instagram as jasmine elmar you can find me there and i'm also on twitter as jasmine elmar easy peasy um, and I have a website, which is jasmineelma.co.uk. Nice and easy. If you just chuck my name into Google, it'll come up. And then also there you can find links to my website for my brand, Legit Threads, or just put legit threads, uh, legit-threads.com if you need to go to it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been amazing. I've had a fantastic time, girls. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.